Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Ignition. Liftoff of the Falcon 9 and Crew Dragon. Go NASA. Go SpaceX. Godspeed. Bottom dog. America has launched. And so rises a new era of American space flight. And with it, the ambitions of a new generation continuing the dream. 20 seconds into flight, stage one propulsion is nominal. plus 30 seconds into this historic mission. Flying crew on board Dragon and Falcon 9 and look at them go. Falcon power telemetry nominal. M1D throttle down. We're throttling down to get ready for the period of maximum dynamic pressure. We're in the throttle bucket. Very nice. You just heard the launch of the first commercial rocket to actually carry astronauts into space. It's called SpaceX. And Professor Scott Miller is going to tell you all about this flight in just a second. Now, he recorded this story just before the original launch date, but that was postponed due to poor weather. SpaceX was successfully launched, however, on Saturday, May 30th, 2020, and successfully docked with the International Space Station the next day. And once Professor J. Scott Miller of Maysville Community College tells us about the SpaceX flight, then he's going to fill us in about what to expect to see in the night sky during the month of June. And then after that, we'll finish with an interesting essay about cancer from a student hailing from Stanton, Kentucky. More about that later. But in the meantime, let's get on with the show. Scott here. Now for a bit of distraction during this COVID-19 pandemic, forcing us to stay apart to stay safe, and perhaps forcing a new normal on all of us as it plays out. If all goes as planned, on May 27th at 4.32 p.m. Eastern Time, NASA, in conjunction with the company SpaceX, will launch two astronauts from here in the U.S. for a rendezvous with an extended stay at the International Space Station. The last time astronauts left from NASA's Space Center in Florida was July 2011, with the last launch of a space shuttle, STS-135. Interestingly enough, one of the two astronauts that will be making this current trip was the pilot and lead robotics operator on that last shuttle flight. On this flight, Douglas Hurley will be the spacecraft commander, responsible for such activities as launch, landing, and recovery of the spacecraft. His partner on this launch is Robert Bacon. He will be the Joint Operations Commander responsible for such activities as rendezvous with the ISS, as well as docking and undocking. He will also participate in other activities while on board the space station. He also has space shuttle flight experience, last flying on STS-130 back in February 2010, 
and perform three spacewalks during that mission. The main purpose of this mission, really, a final flight test for SpaceX, is to validate the crew transportation system, including the launch pad, rocket, spacecraft, and operations. This will also be the first time that NASA astronauts will test the spacecraft and its systems while in orbit. Flying aboard a specially instrumented Falcon 9 rocket, the astronauts and SpaceX will verify the spacecraft is operating as it should by performing various tests at different systems on board. Roughly 24 hours after launch, assuming all goes smoothly, the astronauts will be in a position to rendezvous with ISS. The spacecraft, Crew Dragon, is designed to dock automatically, but if need be, the astronauts can take over control for a manual docking. Once on board the ISS, the two astronauts will join the crew already aboard the station and with them do various tasks and experiments during their stay. How long they remain part of the crew of ISS will be determined by the time it takes to get the next commercial crew ready for launch. At the conclusion of their mission, Bacon and Hurley will return to Crew Dragon, which can automatically undock once they are on board, depart from the station, and re-enter Earth's atmosphere. Splashdown will be in the Atlantic Ocean, off the coast of Florida. Then it is a trip back to Cape Canaveral. Looking long term, the success of this mission lays the groundwork for a return to space from the U.S. after a long hiatus. It means that plans to have regular missions to ISS that allow for further space-based experimentation can resume. But it also would be the beginning of NASA's plans to return people to the surface of the moon, perhaps as early as 2024, and eventually on to the surface of Mars, complementing the robotic presence there already with a human presence. All in all, a pleasant distraction from the situation most of us find ourselves in currently, needing to stay in one place most of the time. We have now passed the unofficial start of summer since Memorial Day weekend is behind us. Ahead of us this month is the official first day of summer, at least in the Northern Hemisphere. Known as the summer solstice, the date is June 20th. For those watching the sun rise or set, this represents the date when the sun rises and sets the farthest north along the eastern and western horizons, respectively. This means that the sun takes longer to cross the sky, giving the longest amount of daylight of the year. And since the sun is most directly overhead, it can warm the earth better for a longer time. Weather response being as it is, we experience warmer weather on average over the next few months compared to the previous three. With a greater amount of daylight, that means less darkness, and it means it doesn't get dark until later in the evening. For those of us that like to view the stars and planets, this can be a bit of a downer. A longer wait until darkness, coupled with a shorter time to observe. Still, there are things to see, so I wander out into the warmer evening to see what is out there. To catch a planet here at the beginning of the month, I'm going to need a clear western horizon. At 9.30 in the evening, not much is visible yet, but just above the western horizon, one might glimpse the planet Mercury. And by just above, I mean that. Extend your hand full length out in front of you and lay your thumb on the horizon just a bit north of west. In this configuration, your hand's width is about 10 degrees. There may be a faint, star-like object found there just above the edge of your hand. That would be Mercury. 
There is a star of about the same brightness, about due west and about the same angle above the horizon. This is Procyon and Canis Minor, the small dog. Above Mercury, you might see a couple of stars of about the same brightness, Castor and Pollux, just peeking out of late twilight. Those two can help you distinguish between the star and the search for a planet. Mercury orbits much closer to the Sun than Venus. While Venus, which has slipped over into morning skies during the first few days of June, dominated the evening sky much of the spring, Mercury will be all but gone from the evening skies by mid-month. A challenging object to spot, one can imagine. As darkness comes on, some patterns I have mentioned in previous broadcasts the last few months begin to appear. Leo the Lion has worked its way over to the southwestern sky. Its brightest star, Regulus, marks the heart of the lion. Marking the end of the handle of a sickle-shaped group of stars, it helps mark the front half of the lion, its head and chest. East of Regulus is a right triangle of stars, and that marks the hindquarters of the lion. Above the head of Leo is the familiar Big Dipper. Four stars mark its bowl, three more form a crooked handle. The back two stars of the bowl can point to Regulus, Start with the star closest to the handle and travel southward through the second back star of the bowl. That line will pass near Regulus. The handle of the Big Dipper helps to find two more stars in two more constellations. Follow the curve in an arcing pattern to the star Arcturus in Boötes the Herdsman. One arcs to Arcturus. And continuing that curve brings me to Spica. That is, speed on to Spica, the brightest star in Virgo the Maiden. The three stars, Regulus, Arcturus, and Spica, form a bit of an isosceles triangle under the Big Dipper. Though these three stars do form a triangle, the triangle most noted in summer skies is called the Summer Triangle. It is made of three bright stars found in three different constellations. It begins to clear the eastern horizon about 10.30 or so, depending on the flatness of the horizon. Vega is the brightest of the three and will be highest up in the east. It is the brightest star in the small rectangle-shaped constellation known as Lyra the Harp. East of Vega is Deneb, which should also have cleared the horizon by that time. It is the brightest star in Cygnus the Swan, a line of four stars running parallel to the horizon at this time of the year, extending south of Deneb, while a pair of stars above and below this line mark the outstretched wings. The third star is Altair in Aquila the Eagle. It rises last of the three and again will need a pretty flat horizon to initially be found around 10.30 at night. The stars that make up the eagle are a bit dim and may need a star map to discover. Of course, the best known alignment in the Big Dipper involves the front two stars of the bowl. This pair is collectively called the pointer stars and are used to point to the north star, Polaris. A line starting from the bottom star extended to the top and then further extended about five to six more times that separation will reach Polaris. Finding Polaris means finding the direction north and thus determining directions along the horizon of east, south, and west. Polaris marks the end of the handle of the Little Dipper. In the early skies of June, the Little Dipper is actually balanced on the handle tip. Under dark skies, two or more stars can be seen above Polaris finishing the handle, while four stars mark a rectangle beyond the handle marking the bowl. The curve of the handle and the bowl extend in the direction of the bowl of the Big Dipper. So, the skies of June become planetless for the most part, especially when darkness comes. 
but there are more than a few constellations to hunt for. Each of these have their own stories to tell, stories that could be fun to recount while sitting outside under warm summer skies. Boy, there's lots of new things to talk about on the show this week. Well, here's another. It's about the Appalachian Career Training in Oncology program. That's called ACTION. It's coming out of the University of Kentucky. Now, this is a career training program run by the Markey Cancer Center at University of Kentucky, and their aim is to prepare students from the Appalachian regions of Kentucky to pursue careers in oncology. And you might already know this, but Kentucky has more cases of cancer diagnosis and more cancer-related deaths than any other state in the country. And the majority of these cases are in the 54 counties that constitute the Appalachian region of Kentucky. That region is sometimes called the cancer capital of America. And sure, that region sees high rates of smoking, of poverty, of exposure to environmental pollutants from coal mining and other industries. There's poor eating habits, but there's also the problem of access to proper health care. And that's sort of the goal of the Appalachian Career Training in Oncology program. It's to work with these young people from the region in providing education and training in the health sciences to enhance their preparation for oncology-related careers and to involve these students with community outreach experiences. So the UK Action Program takes 25 high school and college students from the eastern parts of Kentucky and provides them with two years of summer experiences in the classroom, in research labs, in oncology clinics, as a way of encouraging them to pursue cancer-focused careers. They do job shadowing, they learn about bioethics, And they get hands-on experience working with different professionals in a variety of fields, but all related to cancer somehow or another. Public health, biopsychology, bioinformatics and coding, biochemistry, molecular biology, pathology, and patient care. Well, it was just recently in April of 2020 that this group actually published their own book, The book is called The Cancer Crisis in Appalachia, Kentucky Students Take Action. And basically, it consists of 25 essays written by the students in the action program. The authors write about their personal experiences with cancer. They discuss why they believe cancer rates are so high in Appalachia and what they think could be done to lower cancer rates in that area. Well, Today, we're lucky enough to hear one of these action students read their essay. It's Kerrigan Wasilchenko. Let's listen in. This is Tom Martin with another in our series of podcasts featuring some of the contributors to a book of essays about cancer in the Appalachian region of the Commonwealth. Kentucky ranks first in the nation for overall rates of cancer incidence and mortality. 26,000 new cases of cancer and more than 10,000 deaths each year. This podcast series brings you the voices of contributors to The Cancer Crisis in Appalachia, Kentucky Students Take Action. Edited by Nathan Vandiford, Lauren Hudson, and Chris Pritchard, 
The essays are the works of 20 high school and five undergraduate students, all residents of Kentucky's Appalachian region, who are participants in the University of Kentucky Markey Cancer Center's Appalachian Career Training in Oncology, or ACTION, program. They aspire to careers in the field of oncology, hoping to combat a disease that has ravaged their homes and communities. My name is Kerrigan Wasilchenko, and I grew up in Stanton, Kentucky. Stanton, Kentucky, population about 2,700 at last count. Powell County, about 50 miles southeast of Lexington, near the Red River Gorge. As I'm driving down the narrow road I grew up on, it seems as if nothing has changed. The trees, the landscape, and the livestock all appear the same as they were when I was a child many years ago. The smell of the air is even the same, a little musty with a hint of pine. I pull into my old driveway and make my way to the porch swing. The house is empty now, but I can almost believe that my mother is just inside about to prepare dinner. I become nostalgic when I realize how everything has stayed the same as I have grown tremendously. I begin to think about my life, where I came from, and how far I have come and I'm overcome with emotion. Emotion can be a powerful, driving force. Has been for Kerrigan. More on that in a moment. First, some background on Kerrigan's hometown. The town of Stanton is, it experiences a, like higher rates of unemployment and reliance on various social welfare programs. You know, there's not a whole lot of opportunity for upward mobility as far as job opportunities and education. So oftentimes, people who grow up in these areas, they have to seek education and employment elsewhere. Additionally, a lot of the people in my community and in Eastern Kentucky in general, they experience higher rates of various diseases such as diabetes, complications due to smoking, and cancer. I think that you would be hard-pressed to find someone who hasn't in some way been affected by cancer, whether that be personally or with their friends or family. Cancer is a disease that has ravaged Eastern Kentucky for as long as I can remember, Kerrigan tells us in her essay, Fighting Cancer in My Old Kentucky Home. Whether it be lung, breast, or even colon cancer, one thing is for certain, she writes, it discriminates against no one. Cancer knows of no age, no gender, and it certainly doesn't know how much you love a person diagnosed with it. One of my earliest memories is going to visit my grandmother in the hospital. Although I was only seven years old, I can still remember the smell of the hospital, the visitors in the hallways, and the doctors in their white coats moving from room to room to care for their patients. My grandmother had just had surgery to remove a malignant tumor, but of course I didn't know that at the time. I can remember the surgeon regretfully shaking his head, telling my family that they were unable to fully resect it. But he went on to explain other treatments that my grandmother would be eligible for. We followed his recommendations, but unfortunately they were not enough. My grandmother passed away less than a year later. As a young child, I had difficulty in coping with the grief of losing a loved one, especially to a disease I didn't understand. In the years following my grandmother's death, more members of my family were diagnosed with varying forms of cancer, including my mother. I wish I could say the cases and emotions I've experienced in my own family were unique, but they were not. 
Today, Karagin Wasilchenko is a human health sciences major on a pre-medicine track, class of 21 at UK. And she's taking part in the ACTION program at Markey Cancer Center. Whenever I began working with the ACTION program, I actually delved a little bit deeper into some of the actual statistics that we have on record about cancer rates. And interestingly enough, I found on the National Cancer Institute's website that my hometown of Powell County has the highest incidence rates of cancer in Kentucky, which is very, very concerning. And I remember in high school, I had um, a couple of science teachers who were working on different projects with, I guess, the state, as well as other organizations to try to figure out the cause of why Powell County would be most afflicted with this. You know, it's not isolated to Powell County. As you go into Eastern Kentucky and even the Appalachian area, you find that the cancer rates are just astronomically higher than other locations throughout the country. Among the lessons Kerrigan has learned so far is one perhaps not often thought of as an important contributor to the region's high cancer rate, distance. For many in Eastern Kentucky, the challenges of traveling to and from the nearest major cancer treatment facilities in Lexington are just too difficult to overcome. One of the oncologists that I um, shadowed quite frequently was a radiation oncologist. You know, some days I would come and he'd say, you know, hi, Kerrigan, uh, sorry, we had had a full day planned, but some of our patients weren't able to make their appointment. And, you know, I was like, huh, I said, you know, why? Like, you know, I wasn't trying to like overstep, but I was just kind of wondering why so many had been unable to come. And they said that they were unable to find transportation to Lexington all the way from maybe Eastern Kentucky, Western Kentucky, these rural areas. Why not instead find treatment closer to home? That's actually easier said than done as well because Marquee is actually the only NCI designated cancer center in the state. And so patients who really want to get the best care out there want to come to Lexington. They want to come to Marquee. But unfortunately, sometimes their socioeconomic status and just different factors inhibit them from being able to come and get the care that they really need. NCI, National Cancer Institute, why is that important? Well, that's very important because that means that a facility is recognized for um, their scientific leadership, their resources, and basically it just means that it's like a cutting edge center. It's insane because Kentucky is ranked number one in cancer mortality rates, number one out of 50 states, which is a ranking I don't think any of us want to have. But then on the other hand, California, is ranked number 45 in cancer mortality rates. So that's a really great rating, but they have eight comprehensive cancer centers, which comprehensive centers are a level up from designated cancer centers. And so I think it's really interesting that we only have one and we have the highest cancer mortality rate. So I think it's very important that healthcare professionals, the public, that we all try to advocate for funding from, you know, whether that be the government or other private corporations to really invest in cancer centers here in Kentucky because the people of Kentucky deserve the best care possible and they deserve to not just become another statistic. One day, Kerrigan couldn't help overhearing a patient on the phone. You know, I was just sitting there and I heard the uh, person on the phone. They were just very, very distressed. 
and I just remember it very vividly. They just could not believe how expensive it was. And the person on the phone told them that their bill had stood at more than $400,000. For Kerrigan Wasilchenko, that experience focused her determination. I don't think that the patient was at risk of not receiving care. I don't think that that was the issue. But I mean, the patient was at risk of going bankrupt, losing so, so, so much money. And they're paying, you know, to be able to have a chance to survive. So I just think that that was a very eye-opening experience for me as a future healthcare professional in that I really want to become an advocate for patients and to see them more as just a price tag. It just kind of brings to light some of maybe the shortcomings of our healthcare system and how insurance companies and just different facilities could allow such high charges for life-saving treatment. If someday, heaven forbid, you have to deal with this disease, you might find yourself in the care of Dr. Kerrigan Wasilchenko. As I've mentioned previously, I've had very many personal experiences with cancer. I mean, even since I wrote this essay, I've had two other family members become diagnosed with cancer. And so it's just a very, very real issue that really hits close to home for me. And I believe that I possess the qualities and the drive to really be able to become a great oncologist to serve this area. You know, as I mentioned, a lot of times at physicians travel to different areas, whether that be for better pay, better benefits, different things like that. But I truly, I have no intentions of leaving Kentucky. Kentucky is my home and I want to give back to the state who has taught me so, so very much throughout my life. And hopefully, if I become an oncologist, my dream would be to open a cancer treatment center in my hometown and also, you know, other underserved rural areas. And obviously that would be a great thing to happen, but it would be a really hard feat to accomplish And so, uh, realistically, it would just have to be the result of my continued advocacy and hopefully just ramping up public awareness to, like, the needs of these areas in order to get that to happen. But on the smaller scale, I just want to be able to become a physician that makes patients comfortable and is able to comfort these families and let them know, you know, that you're not alone and that cancer is not a death sentence. You know, it is something that many people overcome and you just have to have the faith and strength to push through this difficult disease. Kerrigan Wasilchenko, studying at the University of Kentucky to take the battle against cancer to the front line, her hometown of Stanton in Powell County, Kentucky. Her essay, Fighting Cancer in My Old Kentucky Home, is among the 25 contained in the book, The Cancer Crisis in Appalachia, Kentucky Students Take Action. It's available on Amazon.com. The essays combine to express a dream Kerrigan shares with her fellow action members. I dream of a world where no one ever has to hear the words, you have cancer. I'm Tom Martin. Thanks for listening. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. 
You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP LP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.